sermon. So we are in this series called uh, Real Life. Our, our uh, Willow Park Network has been going through this. We've talked about the first two, uh, Redeemed and, and Encountered, and then today we talk about an active life, and then the last one we talk about a listening life. And so today I get to tackle what does it mean to live an active life. And here's what we're talking about. We're talking about faith in action. We're talking about faith that is lived out in the everyday rhythms of our life. Now, before I start, I think it's really important. I want to lay down a foundation of how we are to understand uh, this interplay, this tension that can come up at times between faith and between works. I want to lay down a foundation before we uh, really dive into this. The church, as we know, the church has an ugly history of teaching people that they need to do things in order to be saved. That they have to pile up a certain amount of good works or do this and this and this in order to be saved. And for Unfortunately, for a lot of uh, the church's history, they taught this. Um, there was a really ugly season in the Catholic Church where they taught you that you needed to actually purchase indulgences in order to be forgiven of your sins. And so you'd have to go to the church, you'd have to buy this little ticket called an indulgence, and that way you knew that you were forgiven. And at that time, and today of course, nobody wants to walk around with the weight of sin on their shoulders. And so when the church teaches you, you actually have to do something in order to be forgiven of your sins, people would line up and they'd purchase these indulgences. Yeah, and the sad reality is much of this money was just wasted away building huge cathedrals and other things. It was a really sad, uh, sad part of our history. At the same time, uh, there wasn't much of an assurance for salvation. One kind of journeyed through life as a Christian, never really knowing, never really being assured that they were saved. Always uh, always thinking, okay, I got to do this and this and this, or I got to be this type of person, or I got to make sure I have this amount of good works in my life, and just hopefully when I die, I'm going to be saved. You never really knew if you were good enough. And so it was under these conditions that the Reformation happened in the 1500s. There was this groundswell of this movement within Europe where people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and uh, Zwingli rose up and said, this is wrong, this is unbiblical, this is bad theology, and we need to change the church from within. And so one of the big catalysts for this movement was Martin Luther. And Martin Luther's big theme was you cannot be saved by your works. No amount of works, no amount of good deeds will save you. Your salvation is found in Christ alone. That justification only happens through your faith in Christ. And he preached this over and over and over again. He rejected any notion that salvation uh, could be earned in any possible way. But he didn't reject good works altogether. What Martin Luther does, he puts good works in their proper category. He says, and rightfully so, although we're not saved by our works or by our actions, it's our actions that show where our heart is. That where our heart is, we will actually live that out in a natural way. If we've been redeemed and brought into relationship with God, that is naturally going to reflect itself in just how we live and in the good works that come out of us. So he, he writes, one of his main treaties here is uh, on Christian liberty, and I want to read a little bit of it here for you. It's what Martin Luther says. Good works do not make a good person, but a good person does good works. Bad works do not make a bad person, but a bad person does bad works. See what Martin Luther does here? He kind of puts faith and works in their proper category. Good works won't save you. Uh, no amount of good works are going to give you assurance of your salvation, but good works is the natural outcome, the natural byproduct of somebody who is saved, of somebody who has been redeemed. 
It should just be a natural overflow of your life. Then he concludes in his treatise here. He says, therefore, that a Christ, or we conclude, therefore, that a Christian does not live in himself, but in Christ and in his neighbor, or he is no Christian. In Christ by faith, in his neighbor by love. By faith, he's carried upwards above himself to God, and by love, he sinks back below himself to his neighbor, still always abiding in God and in his love. And so Luther doesn't reject good works, but he kind of, he says, no amount of good works is going to save you. Only Christ can do that. You are justified by your faith in Christ, not by your actions. But he still fully recognizes how essential good works are to the follower, to followers of Jesus. And so this is what I want to emphasize this morning. This is our topic, the act of life. And I want to preface everything that I say this morning with this. Living an active life of good deeds is not about earning your salvation or somehow feeling like you've done enough or that you're good enough in the eyes of God. Instead, living an active life is a natural and obvious response of the salvation that you've already experienced, of the, of the way that God has already called you into his kingdom and adopted you into his family. So everything that I say this morning needs to be understood in that context. So if we say that we're following Christ, it should really reflect and show itself in the rhythms of our life, in the important aspects of our life, like how we spend our time, like how we spend our money, like how we treat our neighbors, uh, how we look after the poor and vulnerable, how we act within the workplace, how we function in our schools. You being a Christ follower, it should be reflected in those areas of our life and all the other ones that I haven't mentioned. A question that I believe is always worth asking is this. How would your life look different if you weren't following Jesus? What would you do differently? How would you spend your money differently? How does following Jesus actually affect the everyday rhythms of your life and the choices that you make? And let you stew on that for a bit. And I want, to sh I want to share with you now a few examples of what I witnessed, of faith in action that I witnessed in the Ukraine. I'm going to tell you about two ministries that I saw. The first one, the ministry is called Table Gathering. It was started by a lady that some of you actually might know. She went to Willow Park Church for quite a while. Her name is Eunice Mitchell. And uh, she is now retired. She has this entrepreneurial spirit. She's super passionate about God. She went to Ukraine a few years ago, and she was just, uh, just felt so called to do something. She saw the situation that so many people were living in and just said, I have to do something about this. So she struck up a friendship with a local person living in the Ukraine, and together they dreamed up this ministry. This is a ministry that reaches two demographics. The first one is orphaned widows. So there are these, there are these women that grew up in a state-run orphanage, and there's still a lot of them in the Ukraine. And they've graduated. They're 18 or 19 now, and so they're out of the orphanage. But as you can imagine, they don't have much for skills or for life skills or the ability to take care of themselves. These orphanages aren't well-equipped to really uh, raising kids. And so Eunice said, we have to do something for these for these women. Otherwise, they're going to end up on the streets like so many of them do or just limping along in life. And so uh, they dreamed up this idea of, of um, providing skills for these women and then providing work for these women. And then through this, uh, really building relationships and pointing them to Jesus. So I'll, I'll show you a picture here. So my first three days was spent with Eunice and spent just getting to know these girls and seeing this ministry in action. So I took them all out for a Ukrainian dinner in downtown Kiev. And so there's me sitting there with a whole pile of ladies eating a Ukrainian dinner. Um, just so you know, Ukraine, um, 
I visit a lot of countries. This is, um, in terms of currency, by far the cheapest country I've ever visited. This whole meal that fed all these people was 120 bucks Canadian. Like uh, the, the currency has devalued so much since the revolution in 2014. I, I talked to a friend, a businessman. He had, he had 10 grand Canadian in the bank. He said, after the revolution, it's worth three grand. So can you imagine? So people are living in really hopeless, sad situations. Anyways, that's a side point. So these... These, uh, these orphan ladies, uh, they were given skills. They're trained in how to be maids. And so they go into homes and they clean homes. And then they get paid a really good wage for it. And so then they're empowered and they feel like they're contributing to themselves. So instead of just going in there and giving them money as a handout, we say, no, we're going to train you so you get equipped so you can look after yourself and learn some life skills. So really great concept. The second demographic that the table gathering reaches are widows. There are widows in the Ukraine. It's just, it's unbelievable. I'll tell you stories about it. But there's these ladies just living in the worst possible situations. Um, they're poor. Uh, they're without family. They're so lonely. Most of them can't move very well, and so they can't clean their homes. And so what the table gathering has done is they employ these girls and train them to go and clean homes, and they go clean homes in the widows. Now, the widows, of course, can't pay, so this is where Canadian donors come in. But what a great way to spend your money, right? You know, you're, you're spending money on equipping and training a widow and cleaning, or uh, equipping and training an orphan and cleaning a widow's home. It's really a brilliant um, ministry concept. And what happens here is these, these orphans grew up without moms or without grandmas, without elder, elderly people speaking to their life. And so they've actually built relationships with these widows. And the biggest need for these widows is actually loneliness. They're so sad and lonely. And so three hours once a week, these orphan ladies come in and they build relationships. And it's just this incredible ministry concept. Uh, you can flip to the next picture. So I had the opportunity, oh, I actually so after the dinner, I took the girls out to um, those who wanted out to a Ukrainian folk concert. So beautiful opera house downtown Kiev. For most of these girls, they'd never experienced anything like this. It's kind of a cultural taste of their own um, society. So I thought I'd just throw, throw that up there. Um, so this is the first widow that I saw. She's 90 years old. We walked in there. There was four of us. And she just started crying. And she was crying because she was so happy because we were like the first visitors she's ever had. You know... I've seen a lot of poverty in my life. I think what I saw with the widows, and I went into eight different homes throughout my trip, so I saw, I got a pretty good taste of how they live. It's probably the worst human misery I've ever seen. Uh, they're poor, but they're so lonely. Um, their husbands are obviously gone. Most of them, she's holding up a picture of her son. I always ask them what their life story is. Most of their sons are dead because of alcohol poisoning or drug poisoning. You know, their kids grew up under communist uh, rule, and it was pretty bad back then, and so... A uh, lot of depression, lots of lack of hope. And so, anyways, these widows, they are, they are all alone. They have nothing. And then they're so poor, they can't pay for heating, some of them. They can't pay for food, some of them. And so, uh, table gathering helps, helps out with them. So, uh, really, really brilliant ministry concept at the table gathering. It's all started by a retired lady in Chilliwack who had a heart to serve the poor and vulnerable. Somebody who just said, I got to do something with the skills that I've been given, with the passion that I've been given, I got to do something to help people. And she just started this a year ago, and we're working closely with her. And uh, pretty, pretty cool stuff. I want to share with you one other ministry that we're engaged with. Uh, we've been supporting a Ukrainian couple, a national, uh, for over 10 years now uh, in the city of Zaporozhye. Some of you might know that. That's in the southeast area. 
Uh, that's where so many of our Mennonite heritage actually comes from. Um, so I, I spent four days with them. I lived with them in their home. I got to see their ministry in action. I got to see their life in action. And they're just amazing people. Their names are Andre and Ludia. And again, with us, their primary ministry is to reach out to widows. And so we've set up uh, an Adopt a Widows program. For 50 bucks a month, uh, people can support a widow, basically take on a widow. And that money goes to uh, a weekly visit for these widows. And a lot of it is critical needs. So again, uh, we kind of, they go into these homes and they assess, okay, what is most needed here? For some of them, they just need food. For some of them, they can't pay their heating bill, and so we provide the money to pay for their heating bill. Um, for some of them, it's just other issues, and so we have a critical needs fund within that $50, and then also just uh, the ability to, to take care of them and reach out to them. Um, and again, with the loneliness issue, once every couple months, they have brought all these widows together for like a, a, a retreat, a communal retreat together. And most of these widows that I talked to, when they found out uh, who I was in the organization uh, that I represented and that I supported these people, they, were, they almost started crying. A lot of them were crying. They're saying, thank you so much that you, that you think about us, that you care about us, that, uh, that you're helping us in our, in our situation. Um, so, so sad. I think I have a few more pictures up there. Yeah, so here's a lady. We, we, uh, somebody else came along with Eunice and uh, brought a blanket. And so you can see me huddling in the background there. I'm wearing three sweaters and a jacket. This is in their home. Like, it's freezing there. Most of them can't pay for their heat. I went into one home. I couldn't even take a picture because you don't want to take too many pictures of, uh, you know, poverty. And I, I couldn't do it. But it was the saddest thing. This lady was, like, huddled up in a house coat and a jacket. And she was shivering. And she couldn't move. She was, she was a pretty big lady. And she, and she was just kind of stuck in this tiny little home. And she couldn't pay for the heating, and it was freezing. And she lived with her daughter and her grandson, and they slept on the floor to stay warm. It's the situations that so many of these widows are living in. Because in the Ukraine, you don't have retirement homes. And if there are retirement homes, it costs a fortune. So the state doesn't really take care of you. And because of all the issues that the Ukraine's gone through with war and famine and all that, a lot of the, a lot of the guys are dead. And so there's so many elderly ladies just kind of left hanging there. Um, and so we, we really care about them, and we've set up some ministries to help them out. So Andre and Ludia, they just have such a passion for these women. They come in, and they see the needs, and they say, we're going to help you. Um, we're going to visit you. We're going to help you with your loneliness. Andre and Ludia, is there, what else we got up there? Yeah, so that's us visiting another lady. So this is Andre and Ludia. Um, Zaporozhye is 300 kilometers away from the war zone. Uh, the war zone, as you probably know, um, it is a rebel-controlled eastern Ukraine. It's kind of its own separate country that nobody recognizes, but it's not run by the Ukraine. That's where all the war has been. To date, there's been over one million refugees within their own country. They're called IDPs, internally displaced peoples. So over a million eastern Ukrainians have lost everything and have, are moving into the west. And so in the city of Zaporozhye, they're taking in a lot of these IDPs. And so Andre and Ludia are saying, we have to help these IDPs. These are people in need. We got to do something for them. At one point, Andre and Ludia last year had 10 people living in their home. IDPs that just had nowhere else to stay. And they're like, come and live with us until you get your feet back on the ground. One of the conversations that I had with them while we were there, and they, had, they have a vision to help to set up a self-sustainable livelihood. So you're from the East and you've just lost everything. What do you need? You need money. You need microfinancing so that you can build a business and get back on your feet. And so we're talking about how to do that, how to help these people kind of 
get back on their feet, and then they pay the loan back, and then we can help other people. So these are visions and dreams that Andre and Lydia are dreaming up, but they're just seeing the needs around them and saying, we have to do something about this. We can't just idly sit back and do nothing. The first night I got into Andre and Lydia's house, uh, they had a youth group. They have youth group there every Thursday night, and uh, they're just pouring into youth. He's a volunteer pastor at his church. They are so busy doing ministry, and I got there, and I just got this sense that I'm in the presence of people that have such a heart for generosity and service and hospitality, and it was, it was so utterly inspiring to me. They have a daughter who's living in Canada. She's going to CBC, and I asked them, I'm like, do you guys ever think about moving to Canada? Because they have the ability to do that. They just said, how can we leave this country that has so much need? Yeah, our life would be more comfortable. It would be easier in Canada, but this is where we are. This is where we're called to serve and reach out. This is where we are living our active life. They, they see the needs around them and they're utterly compelled to help. You know, in, such, in, the face, in the face of such great need and lack of hope in the Ukraine, Andre and Lydia are living out their faith in such a real and practical way. Now, I'll be honest, when I was at their house, I was, I was shaken. I was shaken by what I witnessed in their life by their utter commitment to serving God, that it just trumped everything else in their life. They are so passionate about serving and living for God. You know, I have to admit, there are times that I get discouraged by the complacency I see in our North American church. You know, we're so rich, and yet we're so prone to living these self-centered lives. I see faith in action when I go on trips like this, and I'm rocked to the core about my own life. And it makes me kind of... look through my own life and go, what's really important to you, Chris? What is it that you're living for? I I feel like uh, the comfort and the riches have lulled many of us uh, into a complacency where at times following Jesus looks more like a hobby than a daily lifelong commitment to serving him and living for him and engaging in his kingdom. So there was a verse that kept ringing through my mind while I was there. Uh, every time I opened up my Bible, I, just, I was drawn to reading this. And so it's the passage that I want to look at this morning. It's Romans chapter 12. So if you do have your Bibles, you can open it up. Uh, it's actually the same passage that Doug talked about last week. I had no idea until I told Laura where I was going. But uh, it was, it, this four verses really spoke to me. So it's Romans chapter 12, verse 9 to 13. Now we know Romans is this deep theological book. It talks a lot about theology and doctrine But from Romans 12 onward, the conversation changes. Paul gets super practical and he says, now in light of all that you've heard from chapter 1 to 11, this then is how you should live. This is what it looks like to practically live it out. Verse 1 is, therefore. So, verse 9. This is what Paul says to the people. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. What a beautiful, practical advice on what it looks like to just to, to, to live in the trenches as a Christian. To have the daily rhythms of your life reflect the fact that you are following Jesus. It's a life marked by love and devotion to other people. Um, There's a verse that really stood out to me that I was always drawn to, and it's verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. What exactly does that mean? What does zeal mean? What does fervor mean? I think these are words that maybe have lost a bit of their translation. Um, 
as, we, as the English language evolves. So I did a word study. I got, I got into the original Greek, thought, what, what, what did it really mean back then? And what's maybe a different way to look at this? And so, uh, yeah, we can flip it over here. So there are two words that represent the phrase lacking in zeal, two Greek words. The first word is best defined, most literally defined as slothful, or don't be sluggish, or better stated, lazy. So that's the lacking part. And then there's the second word that represents zeal, and it literally means busyness. It's a busyness that uh, represents or best described as earnestness or diligence or striving after. And so the, the translators of the NIV, they, they see these Greek texts and they say, this is the best way to translate it. That's the job of a translator, to capture its best intended meaning for the language that they're translating it into, right? So they say, never be lacking in zeal. I really like what the New Living says. It says, never be lazy, but work hard. Maybe that's a better capturing of it. I think ultimately what Paul's getting at here is that we should be really careful not to become complacent in our faith, to take it for granted, to be lazy. Instead, we should be diligent and active and, and uh, really pursuing God in the way that we live this out. One more word. Let's look at the word fervor. The word fervor, this one's really interesting. It literally means in the Greek to boil with heat or to be hot. This Greek word, it gives you this picture of a bubbling, boiling pot of water that's boiling over. That's what it means to be fervor. So this is why one commentator says, the temperament of the Christian is compared to water bubbling and boiling over a flame. Yeah, I have that up there. So the NIV chooses to use spiritual fervor. The New Living chooses to use serve, serve the Lord enthusiastically. I like that. Eugene Peterson, in the message, this is how he phrases that whole sentence. He says, don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled and aflame. So for me, I think a word that best captures the idea of fervor would be passionate. My passionate. My boiling over with passion for God. Paul says to his people, to the church, don't get complacent. Don't let laziness creep into your life. Keep working hard for the Lord. Be diligent Strive after him. Keep serving him. What I witnessed in the Ukraine with some of our missionaries there is a living example of what we read here in Romans 12, 11. They lived with a passion that boiled over in how they served others and how they saw the needs around them and said, I have to do something. I have to live out my faith in a real practical and tangible way. Verse 13, and I think Doug talked about this last week, talks about helping others in need and showing hospitality. Now, being a Christian affects how we treat the poor. It affects how we look after the vulnerable. Being a Christian affects how we invite people into our home and the way we invite people into our life. These things matter if we're following Christ. These are four verses that are so practical. They, they just give a substance for what it means to live an active life as a Christian. I've got to tell you one last story. My last day when I was there, Andre and Lydia, they took me to a uh, a friend of theirs, and um, this couple, they had four of their own kids, but they felt compelled to take care of the orphans. And so there's still state-run orphanages in the Ukraine even today, and they're not very good situations. And they said, we have to do something about this. So they started looking into it, and they decided we're going to adopt. We're going to adopt some kids and invite them into our family. In one month, they adopted six more kids. So their home, I was there, there's 10 kids living in their home, four of their biological kids and six of these orphan kids. And this isn't foster care. This isn't like short term. They've literally adopted them. They are part of their family. They say they don't treat these kids any differently. 
and they just pour into these orphan kids and make them part of their family. And as I sat there and I listened to their story, and th these aren't rich people. They're barely scraping a living, and yet they said, how can we sit by and do nothing when these kids are not, when these orphans aren't provided parents or family? We want to give them hope. We want to invite them into our home. What an amazing picture of this verse uh, being lived out in a real practical way. So when we talk about living an active life, I'm not saying that we're all called to go and be missionaries in Ukraine or India. That's not at all what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that we all need to open up our homes to refugees or orphans or go visit widows every day. That's not what I'm saying. I fully recognize that we're all gifted and we're all called and we're all wired to do different things. But what it is, we are called to do something. We're called to live an active life, to live out our faith in the everyday rhythms uh, of our life. It's what Martin Luther says. He puts it in the right category. It's the actions of our lives reflect the faith that we have. We don't try to earn it, but it reflects it. Um, the way in which we serve and love people, the way in which we spend our time, the way in which we spend our money, the way in which we interact with our neighbors and our family, they should all be reflections of our faith in Christ. So when I think about living an active life, uh, I can't help but ask the question, what are we modeling to the next generation? I always tend to go back there because that's what I'm passionate about. Do our kids see in us a passion for the Lord? Do they see an active life of service and devotion, a life that is just boiling over? Do, do our kids see that in us? I can't tell you how many times I've sat down for coffee with students where they said to me, I say, why are you Christian? They said, the way my parents live inspired me. And I'm a Christian because of that. You know, and then there were some sad times where I sat down for coffee and there were those who were on the fringes of faith about to walk away and they said, my parents say they're Christians, but I don't see any evidence of it in their lives. Parents, I just want to say to you, don't underestimate the role that you play. You are the primary spiritual caregiver uh, for your kids. Don't underestimate the role that you have been given. I know there are many of you here who are grandparents and I want to say to you, don't underestimate the role that you play as grandparents. I remember as a kid seeing both my grandparents in their late into their retirement years, they were both serving in missions. They were both actively engaged in the church. At the time as a kid, you know, I probably didn't think too much of it, but I know it, it has shaped me. And I look back now and I'm so proud of the heritage that I come from. And uh, they were a model to me as I was growing up as a, as a kid and as a youth. I wanted to be a missionary when I was a youth because of what my grandparents were doing and the stories they told. You know, in the Ukraine, I went to a building just on the way down to Zaporozhye. I went to a building that my grandfather purchased in 1994. And it's, he used it as a halfway house for street people and for prisoners. And it's still functioning. And it's still reaching out to that demographic of people. Yeah, I'm so proud of that. And that rubs off on me and our family big time. And so don't underestimate the role that we play as parents and grandparents and friends and neighbors. On the life of our kids, we need to model to see an active life uh, lived out in front of them. I want my kids to see it lived in front of them. Not just talked about, but lived right in front of them. They got to see it in us. I'll end with this. I was talking to one of my friends on Thursday. He's a really good friend of mine. He's gone through a huge renewal in his life in the last year. Uh, he's gone through some serious medical concerns. He hasn't been able to work. He's lost a lot of things that were really important to him, a lot of stuff. 
And through that, he's just had this renewal of faith. And God has just poured into him and built his life back up and, and through others and through the church and just through his own uh, journey. And he, and he has said to me, he says, you know, I just, I just missed it. For 37 years, I missed it. I missed the point. He says, Not, never again. He's like, I'm going to start living for God. I'm going to stop living self-centered, complacent, lazy Christian life. I'm going to start pursuing God passionately. I'm going to start serving him. I'm going to start finally showing it to my kids, not just in words, but in actual deeds. He's had a full-on renewal. It was incredible uh, to listen to him. He so regrets uh, just pursuing his own life, his own kingdom, his own comfort. And he's just said, I'm so grateful that God has broken me, broken me to very little so that I can realize what's actually most important in my life. He's grateful for the wake-up call that God has given him. So to end, I just want to say, I want to bring us back to Romans 12, 11. Uh, for me, my prayer after this trip is that I will fight against complacency and laziness uh, that so easily creeps in when our life is comfortable. I want to diligently and passionately serve God. I want to be like this picture of boiling water that's just boiling and bubbling over in the way that I serve and love others and the things that my kids see in me. I want that to, to, to look, I want that to represent me. I pray that that uh, would be the picture of our church, um, that that would represent our lives. Uh, not because we're trying to get right with God, not because we're trying to earn our salvation, but because it's a natural overflow, a natural reflection of what God has already done in our life, the salvation that we have already experienced because of him. So may that be a picture of us and our church as we seek to live an active life. Uh, let me pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you have saved us, that there is absolutely nothing we can do uh, to earn it. Uh, but because of your son, because of our faith in Jesus, because of your death and resurrection, we can come before you with confidence. We thank you for that. And God, we thank you that you invite us to participate in this life of redeeming and restoring the world, of engaging in your kingdom, Lord. I pray for me. I pray for us as a church. I pray that we would not fall into the trap of laziness, but that we would passionately pursue you and serve you well, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name.